a true joy to be back from sabbatical and to get to study and preach God's good word for us, church. I love you. It's great to look out and see your faces and I've missed you in this way. It's been a joy to be among you and just so thankful for those who labored over the summer to preach through the Psalms. It's such a sweet time that we have every five years to do that. I'm thankful for God's good work and our brothers who labored in those ways. Today, we embark on a long journey together uh, into the gospel of Jesus Christ written by Luke. Uh, before we dive into my introduction to Luke, let me first pray for our time together in God's word today and moving forward. Lord, we are grateful for your written word. You, the God of all creation, who is worthy to be trusted and praised and obeyed by your hand, we're here and purposed these days. I just pray that we would come hungry, humbled, excited for your word, ready to be taught, to be reminded, to be moved by the Spirit, to be convicted, to be encouraged, and to well up with worship for you and a vigor to live these days to that which you've called us to, to be a witness of this gospel, making disciples to the ends of the earth until you take us home. Do your work, Lord, in our church today and in the season to come. In Jesus' mighty name we pray, amen. In 1965, there was an epic movie that came out called The Greatest Story Ever Told. It was a movie about the life of Jesus. I don't know how theologically accurate it was. I wasn't born in 1965. Um, I've not taken the time to watch it, so I don't know how quality of a movie it is. I typically am not a fan of Hollywood's portrayal of Jesus. But what I find fascinating is the title of the movie. That in our secular, sin-drenched society, people still see the testimony of God. And specifically, the testimony of God the Son. Jesus, who took on flesh to live among us, to die for many, and to rise again from the grave, and to call it the greatest story ever told. It truly is the greatest story ever told. And just like so many generations before us, mankind has told the story of their ancestors to new generations in order to pass on the most important parts of history so that each new generation can learn and grow from it. No matter who you are today, a child of God, a member of this church, or a guilty sinner who knows little about the things of God, but by his sovereign decree are here today to study with our church, 
no matter who you are, you have to see that there is a story unfolding around you that is much bigger than you. And learning about the most important events and players of that story is truly one of the best things you will ever do with your life. Especially for those whom God gives ear to hear, not just the parts of the story and its plot, but the purpose of God in it all. Especially the part of the story that we've gathered here today to begin to study the testimony, the story of Jesus Christ, his life, his teachings, his movements, his, his death, his resurrection. And how for many, that news, that testimony, God will use it to utterly change your life and grow you into a new person who lives no longer for your own glory, but for God's. It's not hard to see that life is set in the context of a story. It doesn't come at us like a math problem. It doesn't come at us like something random, like lost people want to tell us. Life comes at us scene by scene. It unfolds like a drama. Each day has a beginning and an end. And there is all sorts of characters and all sorts of settings. Some days it feels like a tragedy, some like a comedy, most of the time like a drama. Think about how central this is to how we do life. You hear news of a friend who's in a really bad accident. The first thing you ask if you love that person is, are they okay? But quickly, after you hear their status, you can't help but ask, what happened? In other words, you say, tell me the story. Whether it's current affairs or job layoffs or your child's hard day, the collapse of an empire, none of it makes sense without a story. So if life is a story, then what's the plot? Who's telling the story? How do all of our stories add up? What's the purpose of it all? Many epic stories begin with the popular phrase, once upon a time. I'd like to remind us where that comes from, once upon a time. It comes from the beginning of the story the story of our very existence with the words in the beginning once upon a time in the beginning mankind's story fits into the narrative of the story and it's why so many of our stories have echoes of the story within them it's god's story it's God's creation. It's God's providential work to work among the generations of mankind for God's ultimate purpose and glory. In the beginning, the Bible uses this language twice. 
the most popular place you're probably thinking of is Genesis 1.1. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. But you can't start there to understand the story. The revelation of the Genesis is too far into the story. See, Genesis is the beginning of our story. The events of life on earth. To get to the bigger story, we have to go beyond the creation and consider the creator. We have to look into eternity past. And to get to that, we have a similar phrase used in the Gospel of John, John 1, 1. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. It's a reference to Jesus. God the Son, God eternal. All things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. What John is doing here is reaching back, bringing a glimpse for us to see the time before time, the perfect and complete and all-powerful Holy Trinity. God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit, the eternal God, creator, sustainer, ruler of everything. It's only in God's perfect will and timing that he ordained to create all things, to set it in motion, to work providentially in and through it. So consider with me as you wonder about the story, see with me that he not only gives you and I existence, he invites us into his story. Genesis tells us that the hallmark feature of all creation is God's creating us, mankind. But what we must see if we're going to rightly understand the story that's unfolding all around us is that we, mankind, have arrived to an epic already in progress. To understand this, to not understand this, is to completely miss the bigger context and reality of what's happening around you. To not understand this is to make our lives about us and not about the one for whom they exist. The story we find ourselves in is an epic. It's an epic that all the other stories are within. What we have to rightly see is that this epic story is written and produced and directed and starring God. Consider the words of the Apostle Paul, Romans eleven thirty-three through 36. Oh, the depth of the riches and the wisdom and the knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments, how inscrutable his ways. For who has known the mind of the Lord? Who has been his counselor? Who has given him a gift that he might be repaid? For from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be glory forever. Amen. The almighty creator of all things has chosen to invite to ordain you and I into this epic. But we have to understand we arrive, we operate 
in his scene, in his narrative. So that when we begin to think for a moment that I have a say in who should get the glory or who should get the trials or who should get the riches, we are corrected. We're, we remember it's his story. We belong to him. We're his creation. We have to do business with this because every day that we try to make life about us, we're trying to direct something that is immovable, making it very frustrating and very hard. The problem is we're exposed to a lot of people who are telling us that it's all about us, are we not? It's the culture's story, it's the culture's narrative that our happiness is most important. And so we get caught up in that and we think we deserve some happiness. That our success is what we strive for. That our pleasure is the ultimate goal. And so we search for it in all the wrong things. And so we get, we get infected with this idea of do it your way. Have the epic be about you. I mean, that's what the first man our federal head was sold by the deceiver. God was clear to Adam and Eve that they were not to eat of the fruit of the particular tree in the middle of the garden. And if they ate of it, if they disobeyed his command, they would die. Satan comes along and he says, no, no, no. If you eat of it, you'll be just like God. You can make it about you. See with me, the very fall of mankind is the pursuit of wanting to have some share of the glory to make it about us. And so in our sin, we attempt to be glory thieves. Sin at its very core is, is idolatry. It's, it's self-salvation. It's self-glorification and gratification. And most of the time when we get on tilt and we really struggle, it's because we have become consumed with ourselves and our circumstances. God didn't leave us all to be consumed by his wrath because of our sinful selfishness. No, the good news in his story, in the story he has planned and ordained, that he has planned a hero, a redeemer, a savior for us, whom he's chosen from before time, to save us from the consequences of our sin, to save us from our self-reign and our self-pursuits. In Genesis 3, right after Adam and Eve chose sin, fell in sin, God in his grace and his eternal plan for our redemption promised in that moment the arrival of a man who would save God's chosen people from their sin and to defeat Satan. Genesis 3.15, God says, there will come a man born of woman who will defeat Satan in sin and death. And from that moment on, our race, the human race, has waited for the arrival of that man, the promised Savior, the Messiah. 
Generations came and went. World-dominating kingdoms rose and they fell. And then it came time, according to God's good and eternal plan, for the Redeemer to arrive and to do what God promised he would do. This most important part of the story is what we're about to study in Luke's gospel. The coming weeks and months and likely years. As we take our time to do serious business with this beautiful gospel written by Luke. Luke begins his account of Jesus' arrival with these words, starting in verse 5 of Luke 1. In the days of Herod, see him pulling in, pulling the camera in, king of Judea, there was a priest named Zechariah. I am so excited to dive into the testimony of the life, the death, the resurrection of Jesus, for it is, church, the greatest story ever told about the most important person who's ever lived. Amen? A person so important that even though he lived 2,000 years ago plus, he has the ability to impact your life more than anything ever could. There is nothing trivial about what Jesus can do in your life. You have to know his story so that you can know him and be saved and then be sanctified and enjoy life now and forever with him. I can't wait to dive in with you. But we're going to dive into the narrative of Christ next week. And this is because God ordained that Luke, in writing this testimony, wrote a prologue before the narrative starts, before the collection of the testimonies he's gathered to testify of by God's perfect plan. He wrote a prologue to help us to have an introduction. What you and I are about to read is the first four verses of Luke. And they are, while in our English translation, many sentences, in the Greek, in the language Luke wrote this, this is one Greek sentence. While it is unique that Luke writes a prologue to his gospel, it's unique because none of the other gospel writers do this, Luke's introductory comments in this way are commonplace for ancient writers of that day. So it's not unique. In this practice, in this way of doing this, Luke is going to explain his connection to the past, his desire to give the readers of the future assurance about the instruction they've received about the gospel of our Lord. So as you get your Bibles out, I, I want to encourage you to bring your Bibles to church um, with you to, to get a Bible. We love to study and preach through the ESV translation. That's a uh, a word-for-word -word translation from the original languages that we find is easiest to connect with and read, and so we really like it among the many solid word-for-word -word translations. I would encourage you, spend a few dollars, get a good ESV Bible if you don't have one, and let's dive in together. 
turn there with me to Luke's gospel. And as you do, let me share some introductory insights to this book we're about to spend so much time in. The gospel of Luke is the first of two volumes of history that Luke writes. It's the first volume. The first volume is this gospel. It's a historical testimony of Jesus' life, teachings, happenings, death, and resurrection. The second volume, the second work, is what you and I know as the book of Acts. It's a historical testimony of the launch of the early church following Jesus' ascension to heaven. It's helpful to know that Luke, this gospel, is the longest and the most thorough of all four gospel accounts, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. More than 40% of it is not included in the other three gospels, including seven of Christ's miracles and 17 of his parables. It's noteworthy that Luke is also the longest book in the entire New Testament. This, combined with the book of Acts, makes Luke's writing more than one quarter of the New Testament writings in total. And while Paul wrote many more books in number, letters in number, Luke's total writing in these two volumes is the largest contributing author to the New Testament. It's also noteworthy to highlight that Luke's name is not given in this gospel testimony. In fact, none of the four gospels identify uh, none of the four gospel writers identify themselves by name in their, in their writing, but that doesn't mean that we cannot know who the authors are. The author can indirectly reveal himself with context, with other writings, and surely further validated by the history of the church, and even those who are outside of Christianity who validate that these are the writings of Luke. Luke talks about the fact that he is the one who wrote this gospel in his opening to his second volume. In the opening to Acts, listen, he says, Acts 1, 1 through 2, in the first book, O Theophilus, I've dealt with all that Jesus began to do and teach until the day when he was taken up. He's talking about the gospel. After he had given commands through the Holy Spirit to the apostles whom he had chosen. With that said, since we're going to spend a number of years studying Luke's gospel together, let's take a brief moment to consider what we do know about him. Despite the vast contribution to the New Testament writings that Luke did, Luke himself remains largely unknown. Very little is talked about him in the rest of the New Testament. If you were asked, what do you know about Luke? If we polled you all, if I had you all write on a piece of paper on the way in, I would probably be right to guess that most of you who have any kind of exposure to scripture would write one thing, that Luke was a physician, a doctor. He's only mentioned by name three times in the New Testament, although much more about the narrative includes him by way of context, and we see that, and def definitely we see that in a further study of, of Acts. One of those three accounts is given by Paul in Colossians 4.14 when Paul says, Luke, the beloved physician, greets you. What we gather from Scripture is that Luke was not a medical doctor only, but a missionary doctor. 
as he traveled with Paul and a number of his missionary journeys, if you think about all that Paul went through over the years, especially the physical toll on his body, the beatings, the shipwrecks, the imprisonments, then we can see why it was a true blessing of the Lord to have a doctor with him in the mission field to tend to his wounds. Luke's also mentioned by Paul in his letter to Philemon, Philemon 23 and 24, Paphras, my fellow prisoner in Christ Jesus, sends greetings to you, he says, and so do Mark, Aristarchus, Demas, and Luke, my fellow workers. We know from Luke's writing in Acts that he spent a lot of time ministering alongside the Apostle Paul on his different missionary journeys, we know that Luke was the only one who stayed with Paul during his last imprisonment in Rome, just before Paul was beheaded. Paul testifies this in 2 Timothy 4.11. Luke alone, he says, is with me. Chills recounting that. That's verse 11. In verse 16, Paul adds clarity to that situation by which he's speaking, saying that everyone else deserted him as the authorities dialed up their persecution of him, but not Luke. Luke was a faithful brother who ran the long race with Paul. Luke was loyal. He was faithful. Dependable. He was brave. A long-term friend and a fellow co-laborer in the mission. And a true companion to Paul. Finally, Luke is historically noted to have been born of Gentile descent. Acts 119, he refers to the Jews using their own language. So if we try to grab hold of these few things we have, we can see something I think is really profound. Luke's not a Jew by historic testimony. He's not an apostle. He didn't meet the three qualifications you had to have to have been an apostle. And he was not an eyewitness of the life of Christ. But he was an eyewitness and a major player in the events of the Acts, of Acts, where we see in his writing, he often uses the pronoun we to speak of Acts narrative. He's in the midst of it. We know that he spent many years and many miles in tutelage and discipleship and ministry with, his, with Paul. And I really love this fact about Luke because of how you and I, church, today can relate to it. See, none of us were privileged to be apostles. None of us were privileged to be eyewitnesses to the life of Christ. But many of us have been greatly privileged to be discipled in the faith by faithful men or faithful women, to be taught, to be mentored, to be molded, to put away sin and selfishness, to know Christ, to love Christ, to serve Christ with our lives. And we've studied, many of us, for hundreds, if not thousands of hours together. We've served the Lord together. We've done a lot of life together. This is a beautiful picture of discipleship, of doing life together in such a way that we become more and more like Christ. 
Church, Luke is not a throwaway to the Christian faith because he was not a Jew, because he was not an apostle, because he was not an eyewitness to Jesus. No, don't do that. He was providentially born by God's decree. He was discipled and saved by God's grace and trained up in the very kingdom work that God assigned him to. The rich and ongoing blessing of his ministry with and to Paul and writing Luke and writing Acts is a landmark contribution to all of the Christian faith, one that is still greatly impacting us today. Church, many, may we come to the study of this gospel with so much gratitude for God's work in Luke and through Luke. May we see that God can do amazing and wonderful things through each of us as well. It is the Lord who gives us life, who saves us, and gives us a great testimony in Christ. It's the Lord who does that, Christian, not us, not you. Don't get caught up in evaluating what you're adding, what you bring. The best part of your testimony, Christian, is Jesus. May we be faithful with it, like Luke was. Faithful to do our part as the Lord has ordained it. We don't need an, a big title. We don't, we don't need to be part of a select group. We don't need amazing skill sets to do this. We just need to be abiding in the Lord and faithful to serve Him every day till he takes us home. To fight our fleshly tendency to make it about us and to keep our lives about him. Next to Paul, Luke is the most powerful writing force in the New Testament. And yet he's basically unknown. But that's okay because it's not about him. Amen? He's joyful to be part of Christ's family and to do his part in the ministry God called him to, and so should each of us. With that, turn with me to the gospel of Luke chapter 1, verse 1 through 4, and here we arrive to this opening prologue of Luke, and we get to hear some of the context for how and why he wrote this gospel account. Luke 1, 1 through 4. And as much as many have undertaken to compile a narrative of the things that have been accomplished among us, just as those who from the beginning were eyewitnesses and ministers of the word have delivered them to us, it seemed good to me also, having followed all things closely for some time past, to write an orderly account for you. Most excellent Theophilus, that you may have certainty concerning the things you've been taught. And as much as have as many have undertaken to compile a narrative of the things that have been accomplished among us, Luke begins by giving credit and acknowledgement for the many who have taken time to write and compile all the various testimonies of Jesus and all that happened around his life and ministry. Not just verbal stories passed around, written accounts, 
in this, Luke reveals the disciplines that make him a reliable historian. He's disciplined to gather credible sources to bring unity and confirmation to his research and writing process. This is very important because Luke was not an eyewitness himself. In this disciplined effort, Luke's account is not abstract. It's not original. It's not bizarre. But in line with the other gospel accounts and testimonies of the faithful of that day. In this disciplined effort, Luke's account proves to be consistent with the apostles' teachings and with all the eyewitnesses of Jesus' life. Praise God. Notice with me something Luke says here when he says, speaking of compiling a narrative of the things that have been accomplished among us. This is Luke's way of giving praise for God's work in all these things. He is motivated to compile the amazing things that God has accomplished among them because they are of vital importance and are worthy to be known and shared and enjoyed. The life of Christ was such an absolutely unique time in all of history. Luke doesn't want it to be missed. I mean, think about with me for a second how critical the writing of the Gospels is to us. To know this part of the story, this most important part, the greatest story ever told about a life that has had the greatest impact on mankind. Praise God that he ordained Luke to do this work and that we still get to benefit from it today, thousands of years later. I mean, that church, Christian, that's a gift to you. This is a gift to you, a blessing for your life. Some of you newer to church or to this church are thinking, I think the guy on the stage mentioned earlier, we're going to study this one book for years? Man, you don't know what you're in for. Why? Why, why would we take... Because we've learned the beauty. We've learned the, the meat, the, the, the depth, the, the, what God's doing with every word for our good, for his purposes. Because we count it that special. It, this is not just a, a fluffy intro. It is to effort to help us, church, be reminded of how good for our lives and our faith this is. And we would value it and change our priorities and our schedules to dive in deep to it together. Look with me at verse 2. Just as those who from the beginning were eyewitnesses and ministers of the word have delivered them to us. He's using the large breadth of work generated from so many witnesses and ministers of the gospel that walked with Jesus and were trained and sent out by Jesus. See with me, church, that 
Luke has a high regard and respect for those that God ordained to be his eyewitnesses and those that would be sent out as the first ministers of the gospel that changed everything. And in this, notice that Luke doesn't puff them up with big titles, but he keeps it simple. And as I really studied and meditated on this part of his prologue, I like this. This is a blessing. Keeps it simple because these people's job was not to be famous. It was to be servants, to be witnesses of someone else's greatness, of God the Son in the flesh, the Messiah, the Lord of all who came who he came to save. In this small way, Luke is showing respect and honor for those that God has called to these important roles, as we should. But he's also keeping the glory reserved for Jesus alone, who is of utmost importance. May we see the humility of those who have come before us, church, and their boasting in Christ alone as the blueprint for our testimony and praise to these things. That the combined fruits of our church's ministry and the words of our testimony would point to how great Jesus is and not to how great any of us are. In this prologue, Luke talks about his sources. He says their accounts have been compiled talks about eyewitnesses and servants of the word who've handed them down. In this, he's saying, I was not an eyewitness, but I am a thorough and qualified historian. My sources are quality and they're many. Church, this is helpful to know. Luke was personally acquainted with the apostles, personally acquainted with firsthand eyewitnesses of the events of Christ's life. This is his way of saying, this is not a story that he's invented. He doesn't want the credit for being a good writer. He wants to be sure his many sources are mentioned to validate that these things did indeed happen. If Luke had his way, according to the prologue, he'd want his name nowhere near the, the way we talk about this gospel. He's saying, I was not an eyewitness, but I am a thorough and qualified historian. My, my sources are quality and many. It's a story, not that he invented. He doesn't want the credit. He wants to be sure that his many sources are mentioned to validate that these things did indeed happen. Listen to how he builds on this in verse 3. It seemed good to me also, having followed all things closely for some time past, to write an orderly account for you, O excellent Theophilus. Luke has carefully investigated and researched everything carefully for a lengthy amount of time, not flippant with this effort. This is Luke's way of saying that he is really concerned with actual history, getting the truth right. It's important that what he writes is proper and fitting so that it can be truly and fully relied upon 
in order to do something really important. And he says it here, or he says it in a moment in verse four, to bring certainty to the reader. Not wishy-washy, not maybe certainty. says in verse 4, he wants Theophilus to have certainty that this is the truth. And so this prologue is important for establishing Luke as a legitimate writer of an accurate testimony of these things, especially given that he was not an apostle and not an eyewitness. Church, we need to have confidence in this gospel we're diving into because of who Luke ran with because of his closeness and proximity to these things, as he's mentioned here, because of his diligence to respect the process and organize the facts and the testimonies of those he knew. But our confidence, church, in this gospel account needs not be essentially or fundamentally based on any man's said validations, but upon the fact that God is the one who breathed these words into Luke to write them with utter precision, the very things that he wanted to be written and shared. While Luke's explanations of his sources and the seriousness to rightly pull them together of what's happened around Jesus' life ministry, while that's important, we must remember that ultimately the author of the gospel of Luke is God himself. While Luke is the author, God chose to write and gather this account providentially supernaturally it is ultimately god's word that luke's writing how do we know this second timothy 3 16 through 17 says it so well all scripture a holy canon of scripture is breathed out by god and profitable for teaching for reproof for correction for training in righteousness that the man of god may be complete equipped for every good work Church, may we praise God for his holy written word. I can't imagine where we would be without it. Just think with me for a moment. Where would you be without it? <laughs> praise God. May every day we submit ourselves to studying God's word and it's given wisdom and to mature us and strengthen us to obey his commands and to worship him with our lives praise god that luke took time to follow all things closely for some time past to write an orderly account oh how blessed we are to have such an expansive account of jesus life teachings death and resurrection It is here in verse 3 where we read that Luke is writing to a man named Theophilus. We do not know specifics about Theophilus, but we do know that Luke hopes that his reading of the events and teachings of Christ 
will bless him with sound remembrance and assurance of the amazing truths that have been taught. I like this because in many ways this is showing its aim to do a mighty work in a person's life, in your life, my life. It's going to serve us well. Listen to verse 3 and 4 together. It seemed good to me also, having followed all things closely for some time past, to write an orderly account for you, most excellent Theophilus, that you may have certainty concerning the things you've been taught. Church, God is ordained by the production and preservation of his written word. This written word of God, therefore, is not an antiquity of old that we don't have any longer. He's preserved it, multiplied it. We're not talking about something that was read back then, something that's only in this one vault, in this one place. It's right here in my hands. It's right there in your hands. Praise God. What a blessing. God's preserved it. It's one of the most reliable and preserved collections of books that we have in all of history. Just as Luke wanted Theophilus to be blessed by studying and recalling these amazing truths again and again, that's the purpose of getting to have it, to study it, to meditate on it. This is also what the study of God's word does for you and I. That it might give you and I assurance of these amazing truths as they have been taught to us as well. It's a true blessing because you and I, if we're honest, are prone to forget. Are we not? We're, we're prone to lose sight. We lose confidence of that which our faith is built on. So our gathering today and each Sunday to follow, Lord willing to study this gospel account given by Luke, is to be a real and active blessing to your life. To be reminded and emboldened for what is true, what is true, what did actually happen, and therefore what our faith is built on in ways that it stirs your worship for God and your faithfulness to the gospel ministry has given us. What a joy to be part of it. Just before we move on, why is certainty so important? I mean, that's a big purpose for why Luke's writing this to Theophilus, certainty. Why is that so important, especially regarding the testimony of Jesus? Because we live in an extremely uncertain world. And these days are very uncertain. And when you and I begin to think that they're going to be really certain, is when you and I are really set up to fall on our face when they're not. 
The old saying is nothing is certain but death and taxes. With so much uncertainty in this life, it is most profound to have the blessing to get to know and to trust God. To know what is truth according to the one who is truth. This is what God's word does for us, church. It is the basis for our certainty in a world full of deception and fleshly manipulation. It is how we know what is true. It is the most reliable thing we have in this entire life for all the reasons why God's word is a rock, for why we must base and build our life, is why Luke is so passionate about laying down a totally reliable account of Jesus' life, death, and resurrection so that Theophilus and all who read it can know about Christ and the good news that he alone brings to the many he came to save. Luke's goal is that his readers have certainty that is grounded in gospel truth. Oh, how we need firm, firm and lasting certainty in the things of God. Amen? My encouragement for each of us as we dive into this gospel together is that you don't just say that you're certain, but the way you live your life shows that you're certain shows that you're grounded in the gospel of our Lord. You want to bring me something? Thank you, sis. See, the microphone's so uncertain. Certainty needs to be at work every day in our lives to combat the lies, to combat our own fleshly tendency to drift. Oh, how we need to be grounded in the Lord. May it be so. Amen. The gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ is not just to be heard, it's to be understood. It's to be embraced, but not just embraced as truth, but truth that changes you and literally changes your life forever. Paul says in Romans 1, 16 through 17, I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. For in it is the righteousness of God revealed from faith for faith. And it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. The gospel of Jesus is the greatest story ever told because of the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. It is the compelling, life-altering story of how God purposed and planned in eternity past to save lost sinners from eternal hell unto glorious life with Him in holy heaven. The gospel is God's plan of amazing grace to send his son to do an atoning sacrifice for the sins of all whom he would ordain to put their faith in him alone. The story we're about to study is the story of Jesus. It's the testimony we call the good news, the gospel.
Word of Truth Catechism, question 68. What is the gospel? The gospel is the good news of the grace and power of God to redeem undeserving sinners to eternal life through Jesus' perfect sinless life, his substitutional sacrificial death, and victorious resurrection from the grave. These sinners are saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in Jesus alone, from the eternal wrath they deserved, and they're reconciled to an eternally secure relationship with God. Amen? The word gospel comes from the Greek term evangelion, and evangel was news of a great historic event, but not one that you just heard about and then forgot. No, it It was news that changed its listener's condition, required a response after truly hearing it. Romans 10, 17 says, faith comes from hearing and hearing through the word of Christ. If you are not a Christian and you are here and you plan to join us in this study, you've come to the right place. Because the good news about new life, everlasting life, life with God, is the news about Jesus. Jesus is the only one who can give you this life. God alone is the only one who awakens dead hearts and breathes new life and saving faith into those he ordained to save. If God is going to do this saving work in you, you must first hear it, understand it. So I would say keep coming and listening. Ask questions and journey with us. Pray to God that he would make things clear to you, to open your heart and your eyes, to not just hear it here, but to believe it with your life. And if he does this, if he gives you his saving grace, you will forever be changed by the gospel. We're praying for you, for the rest of us, for the saved, for the adopted, the born again for the church. Don't ever forget that the gospel is not something you ever move past. It is the way you make progress in the faith. You need the gospel testimony in your heart and your eyes and your ears every day of this life. The faith that God has given you so you would abide in it and grow in it, live it out. The problem is too many Christians, and we all can become prone to this, we tend to think the gospel is for salvation, and then once you're saved, you move on to deeper things. And that line of thinking reveals that in, in many ways we don't understand the gospel. The gospel is not just a truth that we affirm with our minds, it's also a reality we experience in our hearts and souls every day. We who belong to Jesus must live in line with the gospel, walk in step with it, as Paul mentions in Galatians 2. Only when we do that do we avoid legalism or license, pursue the joy found in complete and utter surrender to Jesus alone. The gospel so changes everything about us that it restructures our lives, our motivations, our self-worth, our self-understanding, our identity, our worldview. So we've spent many years in pastoral epistles and 
And I've just seen and, 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 and been excited to slow together as a church to be back focused in a lengthy way on Jesus. And I pray it's good for your soul, for new growth, for healing, for emergence into a new day. Brothers and sisters in Christ, some of you are primed for this study of Luke because you have lost sight of your first love desperate for a fresh view of your Lord and Savior, his teachings, his character, his priorities, his love, his surrender. I can't wait. As the song lyric says, you can have all this world, but give me Jesus. We're in for an important journey. I pray God would have his way with us as we go. I can't wait to see him at work. Pray with me. Lord, you are good. Every word in your holy word is for a real purpose. And today we're reminded of that. To spend time in introduction, to spend time in prologue. These are still your word for us. Purposed to do a work. To give us a foundation, to give us an understanding to do your work in us and through us. And so, God, we're, we're excited. We're privileged. We're honored to be a part of this together. And I just, I just cry out like Habakkuk, Lord, do your work. Do your work in us. Don't leave us where we're at. Take us to a new place, maturing and growing, moving away from sin and then living out our faith. In this, Lord, lead us to the cross to see that the greatest gift ever given has been given to us who believe in you, and we are by it forever changed. What else do I need but Jesus alone? You can have all this world. Give me Jesus. Hear us as we respond in song. Move mightily through the spirit and the words of prayers and affirmations and walking together in this day and this week among us to do your work. But hear us sing together as we prepare to close. In Jesus' name, amen.